All right, on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the December 2015 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be a terrific conversation. Uh, my first guest is Dr. Renda Wiener, an investigator for the Center for Healthcare Organization and Implementation Research, and also an assistant professor at Boston University School of Medicine. She'll be discussing two articles, Pulmonologist Reported Use of Guidelines and Shared Decision-Making and Evaluation of Pulmonary Nodules, a Qualitative Study, and also Primary Care Providers and a System Problem, a Qualitative Study of Clinicians Caring for Patients with Incidental Pulmonary Nodules. Thanks for joining us, Renda. Thank you for inviting me. My next guest is Dr. Nicole Tanner. She's the Assistant Professor of Medicine from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina. She'll be discussing her article, Management of Pulmonary Nodules by Community Pulmonologists, a multi-center observational study. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Thank you for having me. And last but not least, um, right with his accompanying editorial, Dr. David Baldwin, Honorary Professor of Medicine from Nottingham University Hospitals at the University of Nottingham in the UK. His editorial, Development of Guidelines for the Management of Pulmonary Nodules Towards Better Implementation. Um, David, thanks for joining us on the line. Greetings from a very wet and windy UK. <laughs> so um, it, there's obviously a, a theme to this month's podcast, and it's all going to be about nodules. And I, I, I you know, was immediately struck by, uh, you know, the different approaches, and then uh, and, and David's editorial kind of bringing a lot of it together. So I think this is going to be a, a terrific discussion. Let's let's set the framework, and and I don't think we need to explain to people why nodule management is important, but per se, but I think there is uh, a lot of, of, well, there's a lot of guidelines, there's a lot of information, and there's a lot of misinformation, and I think a wide variability in practice, and that seems to be the, the theme that you all struck at. So, so Randa, why don't you start and, and, and tell our listeners a little bit more about what, what you know, drove you guys to do this work, what you accomplished, and, and what you found, and then obviously everyone can feel free to chime in. Sure. So um, as you've commented in your introduction, it's well known that there's a lot of variation in how pulmonary nodules are managed. And what we wanted to do in these two studies was to explore um, the, from the clinician's perspective um, what, what factors were coming up in terms of their decision-making and how they were deciding to evaluate nodules. So in the first study, we interviewed pulmonologists 14 pulmonologists from four clinical sites about uh, the factors that contributed to decision-making and specifically the extent to which they followed guideline recommendations um, for evaluating pulmonary nodules. What we found was that um, pulmonologists consistently reported that they assessed the risk of cancer, which is the uh, first step recommended in the American College of Chest Physicians guidelines for pulmonary nodule evaluation and that they also um, fairly consistently reported that they assessed the patient's ability to tolerate invasive procedures um, for uh, diagnosis of a pulmonary nodule, which is the second step in the guidelines. Um, however, there was a lot of variation in whether or not pulmonologists followed through with the third recommended step in um, pulmonary nodule evaluation, which is to assess the patient's preferences. So as you know, there's not great evidence uh, comparing strategies for pulmonary nodule evaluations, and there, there um, are important trade-offs between the strategies of surveillance versus biopsy versus immediate surgical resection. So the guidelines um, state that it's important to incorporate patient preferences. 
And um, when we explored that with pulmonologists, we found that there was really a lot of variability. And um, while some pulmonologists said that they always take patient preferences into account in the decision-making, um, other doctors said that they never do, and most people fell somewhere in between, um, involving patients only when um, it became clear that, that patients weren't entirely comfortable with recommended management. Um, we also found that other factors like um, convenience, concerns about malpractice, um, the doctor's personal preferences, um, and their comfort and experience with managing pulmonary nodules were very important in um, deciding evaluation, often more important than the patient's preferences. So that's the first paper. In the second paper, we also interviewed clinicians, but this time focusing on primary care providers to see how they were evaluating pulmonary nodules and, and also how they were talking to patients about um, nodule evaluation and nodules themselves. And what we found was that um, primary care providers generally thought that patients understood that nodule evaluation was about um, trying to figure out if the nodule was a cancer, and they rarely discussed explicitly with patients what that risk of cancer was. Um, primary care providers tended to think that um, patients were not particularly worried about pulmonary nodules, and they seldom... Um, explored that with patients, whether they had any concerns about cancer or about the evaluation process. We found that overwhelmingly the um, driving factor in how primary care providers decided to evaluate a pulmonary nodule was whatever the radiologist had recommended in the uh, CAT scan report. Um, and going along with that, the primary care providers tended to um, tell patients, you know, this is what the, rec the radiologist recommended, this is what we're going to do as the next step in evaluation without involving the patient in a shared decision-making process or discussing what other options might be available. That you... It's striking. <laughs> and it's fun. I think it's interesting as the uh, brave new world of lung cancer screenings about to open up, right, and where if this falls into the lap of our primary care doctors, based on the information that you just reported, um, it does not seem that the system's remotely ready. That's absolutely right. And the one other thing I would comment about that is something that came up again and again in these interviews with primary care providers, as well as the interviews with pulmonologists, was that this idea that the system is not yet ready, that there needed to be um, systems in place to help doctors um, evaluate nodules, to help prevent patients from falling through the cracks and being lost to follow-up. So it does raise concerns about what's going to happen when uh, lung cancer screening becomes widespread. If only there were guidelines. Can <laughs> <laughs> no, I ask a, a question uh, here? Um, I just wondered, um, did, any, did any of the people that were interviewed actually refer to the guidelines um, in the context that, you know, the ACCP guidelines were presumably quite fresh at this stage when you did the study? Yeah, so several um, of the the pulmonologists anyway, um, almost all of them referred to the guidelines. They would say, well, you know, the guidelines have issues, but I know they're out there. And, um, and they talked about that, especially in determining intervals for surveillance, but less so um, in deciding between, for example, uh, surveillance versus biopsy versus resection. The, the primary care providers almost never referred to the guidelines. They really talked about what recommendation was made in the radiologist report. 
And Renda, did you get the I, sense I think that, that would be a... I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, think that, I think that would be a similar sort of uh, finding in the UK uh, that primary care uh, uh, providers are very much guided by the, the more specialists. But it's interesting, isn't it, that despite knowing about the guide, guidelines and, and being aware of the recommendations that the um, secondary care pulmonologists were, were not, still not, not actually adhering to the guidance, it's, it suggests a, a lack of con- people being convinced by the guideline. Absolutely, or lack of awareness or something. And I think Nicole's study also very nicely illustrates that. I would say that's a perfect segue to Nicole, so why don't you tell us what you found, Nicole? Sure. So the reason that we undertook our study is um, we know that obviously there are a lot of pulmonary nodules that are being found more and more often, and there's a new um, article that's out that estimates the prevalence of pulmonary nodules to be 1.5 million annually. And so, um, you know, a lot of these nodules are being referred to pulmonologists, and the question we really had was what type of diagnostic odyssey does a person who has a pulmonary nodule um, have when they're referred to a pulmonologist? Um, You know, we wanted to see you know, what the prevalence of malignancy was in this group of patients who are ultimately referred to a pulmonologist and to figure out what types of tests were being used um, and I think more importantly to look at um, what the pretest probability was and how this might have influenced management decisions that the pulmonologists were making. Um, and so I guess first off, we did find that the prevalence of malignancy was about 25%, um, which as far as we know, this is the first time it's really been looked at in a community setting up for nodule referral for intermediate-sized nodules. Um, and that has implications because it means that we as pulmonologists really need to um, be cognizant of that and, and make sure that we're um, thinking that, you know, there's a one in four chance that a nodule referred to me could be cancer. Uh, but more importantly, that we follow guidelines um, and, and do what's right for the patient. And so... Uh, we went ahead and calculated what the pretest probability for malignancy was for each of the 377 patients with nodules that were referred uh, to these 18 different community pulmonary practice sites, um, which I would point out ranged uh, geographically throughout the United States. And what we found was that a number of these nodules um, were uh, in the low-risk category, but what uh, which would you know, would would say that the the pulmonologist should then choose a route for surveillance, um, went on to have invasive procedures, um, which goes against the guidelines. So when we looked at the the pretest probability, um, it found that there was really no difference between the three groups, low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk, um, as to those who underwent surgical resection, um, and that there was a high rate of invasive procedures for benign disease. Um, which was shocking to us, um, if, especially when you think of Renda's paper, which says that the, the pulmonologists are saying, yes, we, we know about the guidelines, and we look to the guidelines when we manage pulmonary nodules. I think our findings suggest that while they maybe know the guidelines, they're not following them, or perhaps they don't know the guidelines. And so um, that's, that was what was the most concerning and I think interesting finding was that really it didn't seem like the treatment decisions that were the next step in management were following guidelines. Well, that's, this is where I think it really gets interesting because, you know, the other thing that was alluded to, I think, um, from Renda's work was the, the scenario where, you know, okay, I presented to my patients this, um, and, as, you know, part of the, maybe they did just share decision-making, maybe they didn't, but, you know, you have the patient who, despite your reassurances, um, ultimately goes and either demands the second opinion and finds somebody willing to say, go cut it out. I mean, it, you know, it's, it, it's still a relatively nebulous area. I always wonder how often... Um, there's a, the situation where someone sort of says, 
fine, I'll refer you to the thoracic surgeon. It's going to be benign, but you know, you've got the patient who's in your office in tears that refuses to accept your recommendation. Um, you know, I, I, it's always that gray area that you wonder where this falls into. But I was struck by your data, Nicole, at the the high rate of resection of benign disease, mm-hmm. and not just biopsy, but but resection. Right. We, we were equally as shocked. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting because we've presented this data at different meetings, and, you know, you'll have the thoracic surgeon in the crowd who will say, you know, that's not that shocking. If we don't do surgery for benign disease, then perhaps we're not doing enough surgery. And if no. a person really fall, falls into that high-risk <laughs> category, um, you know, you can't fault yourself for someone with a pretest probability of greater than 65% that you're concerned about, the patient is concerned, and they agree to go on with surgery if you have find, uh, benign disease, and that's that's great. You know, the patient feels relieved. My bigger concern is these patients with a pretest probability of less than 5% who should have been served, right. undergone surveillance um, that undergo uh, these invasive and potentially harmful procedures. I think what this highlights to me is that um, doctors, and I think probably to some extent patients as well, but I think a lot of times this is driven by doctors, being more concerned about the potential harm of missing a cancer or delaying diagnosis and treatment of a cancer as compared to the potential harms of an invasive procedure. I think that tends to be uh, sort of downplayed. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, and that, that's where, that's where um, ensuring that there's a very good communication with the patient explaining that concept exactly. is probably very important, isn't it? But it's interesting, in the screening studies, uh, particularly the, the later screening studies, um, they've shown a pretty low uh, benign resection rate. So in, in the, um, certainly in, in the UKLS study, our, our United Kingdom lung screen study, the benign resection rate was only 10%, uh, which is a little lower than the NLST benign resection rate. And, and the Nelson resection, benign resection rate is also very, is also very low. So it, with the correct protocols being applied, you can, you can safely bring the, the resection rate down while still getting patients to, to benefit. So I think the, the, you know, this is an element of the guideline which, which really needs to be uh, carefully implemented, I think, and, and I think pulmonologists need to really understand uh, about this benefits and harms equation that the patients really need to understand uh, and, and then make their own choices. Um, you'll always get the occasional patient who will want it cutting out whatever, but in my experience, it's, it's quite a... Quite Quite a f- only a few people will, will insist on that once the explanation has taken place. Although we do know from, which I'm sure the other authors will know um, uh, more than me about this, but we do know that, that patients, when they're confronted with a nodule diagnosis, they will automatically uh, assume that that is a cancer diagnosis as opposed to actually a rather unlikely diagnosis of cancer in many cases. Right. Sure. And Amanda has a great paper that demonstrates that for sure. Yeah, and I think, quote, right? <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, we did find that, absolutely, that patients across the board immediately assume that um, the nodule is cancer. And I think that's one of the things that was really interesting about um, Sarah Golden's study that I'm talking about, the one um, with the interviews of the primary care providers, that um, so many of the primary care providers said that they just assume that the patients are aware that this could be cancer and, and they don't bother to give any risk information, you know, what we found in our other work is that patients tend to grossly overestimate the risk of cancer. And, and yeah. if, they don't, if you don't correct that, then they're going to be way more worried than 
you know, and perhaps asking for things like surgical resection because they think, oh, my God, I've got cancer, when actually their risk may be quite low. And I would I, just circle I, back. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to circle back to the, the comment that was made about the, um, the screening trials and the low um, rates of surgical resection just in general um, you know, in the NLST and in the European studies. And I would say, you know, at least looking at the NLST, those were 33 centers in the United States with academic excellence, tertiary referral centers, dedicated cardiothoracic surgeons, dedicated thoracic radiologists. You had these multidisciplinary teams that were sitting together reviewing the nodules and deciding the next best way. So in the community, that's not so easily translatable. So I think that's why you see, um, at least in this retrospective chart review that we did, that there's a higher rate of surgery for um, benign disease. Perhaps it's a lack, lack of expertise that you see in these screening trials um, where you have uh, experts in all disciplines. Um, that's just one thought. Well, well, it's also I the issue of, of litigation. Is, how much is that a fear of litigation playing a role in this? I mean, it was alluded to uh, in Renda's from your work, too. Mm-hmm. That's right, yep. Sorry, David, I interrupted you. What were you saying? Well, I, I agree with the, con- the, the expertise argument because uh, that's absolutely the case. But that's, that's the very reason we need good guidance and good implementation of guidance so that the expertise that's used to develop the guidance is, is spread out amongst um, other people who may be le- less expert uh, who then can ensure that all patients benefit rather than those lucky ones that are managed in a very um, expert center. Absolutely. So, so what, do you, what what's the solution then? So how do we how do we go about uh, trying to do this? I mean, the, the the papers are there, the the data, even with its limitations, are there, and yet, you know, we see. I mean, if if so many people are just following what the radiologists are saying, you know, maybe that needs to be our next target of education of changing what's written out of the bottom of their report. Well, I think that's right, and I think that is one of the things that's really been um, is being promoted in the context of lung cancer screening, at least, to have standardized reporting, use of um, systems such as lung rads to try to um, really standardize the process and make sure the appropriate uh, next step is included in the report. I think it also screams loudly for a need, uh, as we're all very aware of, um, a systemic approach or a systematic approach, excuse me, to lung cancer screening at centers. That you can't just say, hey, I've got a CAT scanner, let me start using it. Um, that, you know, this really highlights um, the true need um, for a system and for an evaluation and a discussion ahead of time um, as to what the goals of screening are. I mean, some of this work is was obviously on the incidental nodules, but when we're actively looking, um, the, it's even more a discussion-based and patient value-based as to what to do next. Right, and I think what we're finding, and I think um, CMS, who's approved coverage for uh, lung cancer screening and their beneficiaries that meet uh, criteria, is, has also approved a shared decision-making visit uh, prior to the actual performance of the LDCT scan with the patients. And so no one's quite sure how to conduct a shared decision-making visit, and it might be, you know, just check I did it, but I think a lot of us, um, Brenda and myself included, are working on um, ways to educate patients prior right to their um, scan, and so we've actually um, been working on an intervention where we sit down with patients and discuss, you know, what the scan is, what the risks and benefits are, and let them know that there's a one in four chance that they're going to have a nodule, and that that does not mean cancer um, Mm -hmm. ahead of time, so that when it comes, then they're not surprised, and they don't jump immediately to the worst. Um, There's also a lot of 
work being done on, you know, just informational brochures that go out with the reports that you send to the patients. You know, you have a nodule. This is what it means. Um, we're going to follow it closely, things that reassure. But you have to let the people know ahead of time um, that it's a very real possibility. And I think um, what I hear from patients, though, is knowing that ahead of time makes them feel a lot better when they receive that result. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Nicole. I mean, we've done work with patients where, you know, they haven't been prepped in advance of the possibility that a nodule would be found through screening or obviously in the incidental setting where it comes as a complete surprise. And not knowing is, like, way worse than if they are prepared for it in advance. So I think CMS was right on in requiring the shared decision-making visit and requiring that discussion that a nodule may be found and what that would entail um, be conducted. I agree. Um, so do you either of you, would you be, uh, or give us some insight as to, you know, in your own personal practices, just what the approach you're taking? I mean, not giving your canned speech, but what is it that you focus on with your patients? I mean, is it what you just said, you know, one in four chance that I'm going to find something? It's going to be still unlikely to be a malignancy. You know, odds are here's the downside to doing this. Here's the upside. And, and, and is that sort of your canned speech? Yeah, I would say something along those lines. We um, have a, a shared, deci shared decision aid guide that's where it's in paper so that they can take it home and read it. Um, we also go through everything um, on a computer where there's like a module for patients to look at what the CT scan looks like. It compares um, the number needed to screen with lung cancer or for lung cancer screening versus mammography and colonoscopy, things that they're familiar with. Talks right. about the risk of, of a nodule and overdiagnosis, and we try to explain that in layman's terms, which isn't always um, direct. But I think the most important thing that we do is we provide the patient with an individualized risk calculation for them as to what their risk of developing cancer is in the next six years prior to doing um, the, the scan. So we'll say, you know, if there's a thousand people in the room, there's actually a pictograph for this, and it'll show the number of people that would have died with their particular risk, and then the number fewer that would have died if they were screened. And so I think that's right. helpful, at least the feedback we've been getting from those that have gone through this intervention is that they like having the paper, especially the older generation who's not very computer savvy, so they can look at it later. Um, but then the added um, computer value and, and the individualized risk, if we can explain it in a way that they get, um, and I think the pictograph helps there, and there's been a number of researchers at the VA and elsewhere that have, have looked at that particular pictograph and showed that it's very helpful. And so yeah, I give them the canned speech that, you know, uh, there's a one in four chance and it's up to you. You have to weigh the risk and benefit and I will be here with you. If you find, if we find a nodule, we'll do what's best. And we talk about the risk of procedures and all of that stuff. It, it seems well received, but that might just be in my mind. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anybody I think, else? <laughs> well, I do something similar to Nicole, but one point I would like to highlight in light of what we're talking about today is, you know, one thing that I tell patients is that, again, there's the one in four chance that a nodule will be found. And if it's found that most nodules are too small to safely undergo biopsy, so what for most people nodule evaluation entails is, um, you know, serial CAT scans over time. So trying to set up in advance that expectation that, oh, if something is found, I'm going to have a biopsy. Um, you know, I think some of that is what leads to, um, you know, kind of the patient requests we've talked about before, like, oh, why can't I have a biopsy? Why can't I have surgery to get it out? Um, so I just try to, you know, prepare that even before they've had the screening CT scan. Right, right. right I agree with most that. of what you find is going to be watch and wait. Exactly. Exactly. And, they and have that, to that can be very hard that. for some people. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. 
And I think, you know, that's great that we can do that for a screened population, um, but with the incidentally detected nodules, it's kind of a different story. Exactly. <laughs> not knowing, and they're very panicked. And um, yep. we, I think, Rhonda, you probably have a nodule clinic as well. You know, mm -hmm. those folks are usually pretty amped up by the time they walk through my door. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Right. David, does your experience yeah, reflect this? I think it's pretty much the same. I mean, it's uh, it's obviously very important to listen to the individual. I'm sure other other uh, people on the line will say the same thing. You, you have to let them speak and tell you how they feel, and uh, and then explore explore their perceptions for start off, and then correct them gently. I think if they if they do feel that they've got a a very high chance of malignancy. We, we don't, apart from in studies, we don't screen patients at the moment. So it's the issue um, of uh, explaining that you that a nodule may be found and what, what the rate of that would be hasn't hasn't really arisen for us, apart from in screening studies where it's where they have a you know an information video etc. for for that uh, explaining what might be found. Um, so it's usually you're dealing with a person who's had a nodule already, and often in our service it, the, there has already been some intervention from. Uh, other less, perhaps less experienced uh, clinicians. So um, they do, uh, as was just mentioned, they do sometimes come in with with a great deal of anxiety. And the first thing you have to do is to deal with that, um, which can take a bit more time. If you manage to get the patients before they've had the explanation about their nodule and are not aware of it, then it's a lot easier because you can start with a with a better um, uh, playing field, as it were. Um, but, but actually, some of the work that we looked at in our, our uh, British Classic Society guidelines, which were published uh, in, in August uh, of this year, uh, drew on, on the work of, of Dr. Wiener that, um, uh, in sort of qualitative work about what patients' perceptions of pulmonary nodules. Mm -hmm. And, um, you, you know, we, we made some quite a few recommendations, about seven recommendations on, on what you should say to, to patients and, and what you should cover. Um, and I think that's a, actually a really rather important part of the, the guideline. But actually, we only found a total of four papers which which properly informed us on the subject. So these these extra papers that are published in Chester this time are, are you know really timely and and um, and extremely helpful. I think um, with regards to you know more information and highlighting uh, um, the issue of guideline implementation. I'm kind of curious, how is it that you, um, at least on, on your side, what is it that you do to try to implement your guidelines? Because it appears clear to me that, you know, while people might know the guidelines exist, they might not be following them. And the big question I have, which no one probably can answer, is, you know, how do we get physicians, pulmonologists, um, to adhere to the guidelines or know about them or even know to read, you know, the British guidelines and look at ways to communicate? I mean, I think physicians feel that we are all the best communicators in the world, but there's no formal training for that, not at least in current medical school curriculum on how to communicate, um, you know, bad news, those types of things, and, and have these discussions where you're not only speaking to the patient but also listening to the patient. It's just always, when I see this data, especially from our paper looking at, you know, management's all over the board, how do we put people more in line with guidelines? Well, I think it's a, it's a, and you'll know an enormous amount about this, obviously. But the the whole issue of implementation science is something which is really central to to improvement in in care and improving outcomes. And it's about what you were mentioning earlier about the issue of expertise versus less expertise. Uh, you know, there will be many people who are really good at nodule management who really know their stuff and will be very cognizant of the of the guidelines and actually be able to, you know, d develop their own. 
uh, approach to the, the subject based on, on recommendations from various guidelines. And then there will be the others who are just waiting to be told what to do and have lots of other things to do and, and not particularly expertise in this, uh, have expertise in this area. And one of the things that I think many countries rec recognize is the fact that, that in order to make the um, en enormous amount of effort that goes into producing these guidelines actually worthwhile, there has to be a, a subsequent approach to ensuring that that guideline is implemented. And it, be it begins, I think, for personally, having been involved with uh, co-chairing three separate guideline groups and done a phenomenal amount of work on this, so it's very close to my heart. It begins, really, with the initial stakeholder involvement. So when you're developing the guideline, if you can begin at this stage to involve all of the stakeholders, which are many of your users, including the patients and the public, in the development of the, of the guideline and what the important questions are, then you start from the beginning with the implementation process, because those very same stakeholders will be watching the progress of the guideline, they'll be aware of it, and they will use their networks to uh, potentially implement some aspects of, of the guideline. And then in terms of getting into the implementation science aspect, you have to ask yourself, I think, with any guideline, what are going to be the key drivers in implementing a guideline? What, what is it in your area in your country and what are the what are the, the, the the drivers and and you have neatly identified one or two of the the drivers that i was not really expecting i suppose so the risk of litigation for example mm -hmm. that is a, a, effectively a driver as to, to managing to, to changing behavior and if you can use or subvert that driver to to actually implement the correct approach which is not to biopsy and do invasive procedures on low-risk nodules um, and actually to do that to the, the higher-risk nodules, then that you, you've achieved your goal. You've implemented the guideline. You have to then think, how, how can we do that? And, and I think with respect to litigation, for example, um, that if you have a really good guideline and it's well established that this is an acceptable guideline, it in some ways forms a defensible foundation for the clinician to work on. If they follow the guideline, and the majority of physicians would follow the guideline, certainly in our legal system, that offers a fairly good defense. Um, and I think also it can be re reassuring to the patient as well if they know that you're following established um, guidelines which have been produced by a very expert group. So I haven't, obviously haven't gone into the implementation science in, in great depth there, but we can discuss various aspects if we wish. But it's, it's, I think it begins right at the beginning, and it goes all the way through the process of guideline development. And then a good guideline implementation program will include a whole uh, package of tools and materials that will then enable people to uh, be aware of the guideline, uh, see how it works in practice, uh, and implement it. I'm, I'm struck by the, the speed and uptake of, say, the Fleischner Society guidelines within the United States. I mean, to the point where they're frequently the addended uh, bottom part of a radiology report that, you know, when people come to see me and they've, they've brought their outside scans and there they are right there in the report. And, you know, they all so widely adopted for the subcentimeter nodules. But then it's... It's this area that, you know, that was alluded to in the studies, uh, the, the, the 8 to 20 millimeter nodule, that boy, everything just seems to fall apart, and we can't seem to get any of the guidelines widely adopted, as, as Nicole highlighted, and, and, and you know, was, was demonstrated as to what the barriers are. And, and 
just struggling to see why one was sort of adopted almost um, overnight and is is widespread to the point of you know essentially there's a shorthand on on how to manage the patient to then another you know well established set of guidelines that continue to just flounder. Well, I don't know if you could say they would they're floundering, but I guess you know you have to look at the people that are addending or copying and pasting the Fleischner Society criteria. It's the radiologist that's reading them, right? Right. And so Correct. all of these primary care folks are following whatever the radiologist puts, and that happens at my own institution. They'll copy and paste the um, you know, Fleischner Society criteria, and the primary care um, physicians will follow those. And so you wonder if we copy and pasted, you should calculate the pretest probability for malignancy using this validated calculator to, you know, follow the next right. move. You know, if we could transcribe that onto the radiology report, perhaps then we might see the same uptake. But, you know, so frequently people scroll down to the impression, they don't look at the scans themselves, um, right. and, and, you know, you just go on what's on a piece of paper, and we see that repeated um, not just in pulmonary nodule management, but all other sorts of, of things. So the radiologist is really a huge um, part here, I think. They're almost a gatekeeper. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think the other thing is um, I agree that the Fleischner uh, guidelines are the ones that are really um, more heavily referenced, I think, than the American College of Chest Physicians or the new BTS um, guidelines. And I think part of that is because Fleischner has that nice little table, you know, if it's this size and the patient is yep. high risk, do this. If it's this size, do that. And when you get to greater than 8 millimeters, the Fleischner guidelines say that um, three-month CT or biopsy or PET scan, you know, any of those may be indicated. So I it's, think the buff- it's the buffet. You're exactly. walking to the buffet. Exactly. <laughs> Go see Nicole's right. article. Go right. see Nicole's article. <laughs> right. Whereas the American College of Chest Physicians guidelines do have a nice algorithm for, you know, how you should manage those, um, those nodules that have an intermediate or high pretest probability of cancer. But I think the problem is that, um, you know, people aren't necessarily, doctors aren't necessarily using the risk calculators and to figure out what the pretest probability of malignancy is. And, um, you know, maybe we're not as good at estimating that as we think we are. <laughs> um, and people, and, and then there are these other influences on decision making besides the guidelines that, um, you know, drive the wrong, uh, you know, drive people to do something other than what's recommended in the guidelines. I agree with both of the, the comments there. Um, I think the, um, the, the Fleischner Society original 2005 uh, guidelines were published in response, really, to an, an outcry right. of, of uh, you know, we need something to know. We need no, to know point. how to manage these nodules. And they made a really good uh, choice of just getting one table there, despite mm-hmm. the fact that actually in those guidelines there's quite a lot of variation in follow-up within the table, you know, quite a, sure. quite, a, quite a marked, you know, often three to six months or four to nine months in the table, which um, did cause us, when we were trying to implement it, quite a lot of problems. Uh, but the crucial thing is, was it was one of the first ones out. It was nice and succinct. It was produced by a lot of people who were really good at managing uh, nodules. And, and I think that's, that's the reason it, it, was, it was implemented so widely. The difficulty now, of course, now that... Uh, there are guidelines which I would regard as more advanced and um, potentially uh, better in terms of reducing the amount of uh, follow-up CT scans, etc. Is 
is actually changing it so that people now adopt a new guideline. And that is, that is a challenge for implementation. The updating of guidelines can often be, be quite difficult because people are so wedded to the old guidelines which they're very comfortable with. It, it may take people, you know, two or three years to get the hang of a guideline and then somebody then goes and changes it. And uh, it just causes frustration. <laughs> Yeah, it's like getting a new operating system on your on your laptop. <laughs> Just when I got used to the old one. <laughs> exactly. So we've been talking for a while, and I want to be respectful of your guys' times. Um, what haven't we discussed, or, or where do we need to, to, to go here next? Have at it, anybody. Go ahead. Fight amongst yourselves. Well, well I, think, I think what I would one, – one of the things that I would um, – wonder is whether we need more of the research uh, that's been the sort of research that's been published in the in Chester this time. I think that this is re- a real contribution. It will really highlights the issue for people who may not realize there is an issue with uh, with implementation of guidelines. Uh, I think that uh, it's important that we do more work on on what are the key drivers that will te- will make a change and we've already identified one here. If you can if you can get the radiologists to be fully aware of the recommendations and the rationale behind it, then they are one of the key people that will drive the process. If you involve the multidisciplinary team and the key members of the multidisciplinary team. So in the UK, we've, we've published about four editorials on our guideline, and three of those are in radiology journals so that, uh, and published with radiology authors. Uh, we've um, presented uh, to 250 British radiologists with interest in chest uh, a few days ago, and they were absolutely gagging for the guideline. They really wanted to understand why we felt it's a step forward. And I think that's one of the things. You have to have the key members of the multidisciplinary team, and here we have radiologists, but you also have to have a clinical enthusiast and a clinic, series of clinical, meet, clinical leads who will network to... Um, continue the implementation of the guideline and promote it, uh, and actually ask any questions and bring back any any problems back to the back to the guideline developers for the next for the next update, as it were. So I think I think it's it's you could you can explore all sorts of different aspects of this, but it seems in this conversation we've certainly uh, identified I think one of the most important things, and that's that's the the radiologists, uh, and uh, many of the radiologists will still be on the old Fleischner Society 20, 2005 guidelines. That's going to be a challenge to to bring them up to date. And I think maybe one of the other things to consider, and I don't know how well how well to execute this or whatnot, but just something to put out there because we've seen this with lung cancer staging as well. Um, there was an article that was uh, written from a single center, but they showed that if they had simply changed the order of of next test, they would have saved patients um, an additional procedure, and that's for lung cancer staging. And so. The question becomes, should we incentivize physicians to follow the guidelines? Is there some way, financial incentive, uh, something, um, you know, marks for good merit, something like that, that you give them a report and, that shows them and uh, that how well they're following the guidelines? And I think in the era of electronic medical records, that might be something that's um, feasible in the future, but it, it's a thought. Uh, if we could incentivize physicians, like you said, there needs to be a clinician with excitement um, so we need to figure out a way to excite people. And so incentives are sometimes a way to do that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think motivate, a motivated um, local clinical lead is, is uh, absolutely essential. Uh, and the other thing that was, was interesting with our guideline, because when we, when we, we um, sent out the draft for stakeholder com, uh, comments, 
we had seven separate stakeholders amongst the 20-something who uh, almost demanded a service organization section to be included in the guideline. Um, so uh, we didn't initially want to do that, but uh, in the end we ended up putting a, putting a, uh, you know, a couple of page um, service organization recommendation with a, an algorithm of how the service might run uh, for a specialized uh, pulmonary nodule service. Uh, and I think that's quite good because many people since then in the UK certainly have, have uh, asked for the details of this and uh, whether we've got any any slides and any any um, uh, pro formas etc. Which we which we do have uh, and they've been distributed. So uh, again, you could build it into the service organisation and theoretically at least you could say that if you run uh, a specialised service, you may be remunerated for that and that would then provide your your financial incentive. Good thought. I think another thing that um, is a real opportunity here is the fact that lung cancer screening is, uh, you know, being implemented now. There's a lot of enthusiasm about that. And, um, you know, there are guidelines coming out. There are uh, policy statements about implementation of lung cancer screening coming out that, um, that can improve incidental nodule evaluation as well because all the screening um, guidelines and statements emphasize um, obviously, evaluation of screen-detected nodules, but I think there can be some spillover to incidentally detected nodules as well. And I think this is an opportunity to take advantage of the excitement about lung cancer screening to try to improve uh, evaluation of nodules, no matter how they're detected. I think that's a great point. Yeah, point. it's a hot topic right now. It's a hot topic right now, it period, is. right? Everyone's interested in it. Including myself, which is why we did this podcast. <laughs> no, this is perfect. Um, I, I, I want to thank the three of you for your time. Um, if you had any kind of final closing statement, feel free to fire it off. But otherwise, I wanted to um, just say thanks so much for, for spending time with us and, and for obviously uh, your, your excellent papers and excellent editorial to, to come into chess. And I very much liked uh, this, this theme uh, of chess this month. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you for organizing this. This is, I think, a really great conversation. I appreciate it.